0: with Don Archibald. How are you doing, Don? I'm fine, thanks. So you worked in CUSO in uh, Papua New Guinea from 1987 to 1990, right? That's right. And what were you doing there?
1: Well, I started out working in the provincial education office as an extension officer, and what we did was we had a project that we called the Community School Garden Project, which we used to do health Agriculture and other relevant education type extension work. And one of the principles of the community schools in the Highlands, well, in all through New Guinea, was that the parents, in lieu of paying school fees, would come to the school once a week, and they would um, do work in the school. And that way they could pay off their school fees because it was a subsistence culture and they didn't have cash or money. So it was an excellent way to reach out to parents as well as children and teachers. So we had the whole community there basically. We had the, the parents, we had the children, and we had the teachers all gathered under the tree and we could, like, you know, demonstrate health techniques, agricultural techniques, how to raise sheep, how to grow vegetables, new introduced vegetables, protein, and the whole concept of nutrition and and health and other things. So it was a great project. It was part of the World Bank project um, that was called Enga Yakalasamana at the time. And it was a well-designed program. That was really good. So I got to visit all the community schools and talk to teachers, parents, children. And then we started projects like gardens and, and raising sheep. We started introducing sheep because they had no ruminant animals in New Guinea even though they had lots of grass. There was no animal that eats grass. So we started introducing sheep and goats the goats were more destructive than the sheep so we kind of narrowed it back down to sheep and then just growing new introduced vegetables like broccoli and corn and other
0: things and by taking this kind of complete holistic and uh, community involved approach to uh, the project you feel like you really prevent having that kind of um, i mean it, the worst thing to do is to go there and have the community feel like you're just teaching at their kids and you're just talking at their kids and you're kind of outsiders looking in and teaching their kids a different way of life so I guess by, by having that involvement with the community in and, and kind of an entire way, you, you prevent that a little bit.
1: I think so. And the other thing is I, I, in a sense, became a friend of the teachers because I was traveling. I had transport. That was very important that I had a little Suzuki station wagon that I could get around with in the Highlands and so I had transport so like I became like their friend and of course when you're traveling that far you had to stay overnight so you ended up staying in the teacher's with the teachers and then at night you drink beer and play darts and get to know each other and you start to exchange a lot of information and then of course I would be coming to back to the provincial capital so I'd like bring their
0: paycheck or the books they
1: needed or something and so I was
0: their friend. <laughs> at, the, at the time that you were there, was, the, uh, was it pretty rare to have a vehicle like that? Would oh, yeah. Mean, yeah, you were yeah. one of the few people to have one a One of the few people to
1: have a vehicle. Yeah, I was very, very fortunate. We had this. It was a tiny little Suzuki thing. It was great. It weighed, well, four engine men
0: could pick it up out of a ditch. It was great, you know. A great Do you have car. any horror stories as far as getting the nest stuck with that or
1: Oh well that's it. You <laughs> didn't you didn't get stuck, you just uh, you know, as soon as you got stuck, the local tribesmen would come and they'd pick it up, put it back on the road. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and it was such a simple little car you could actually fix it. You know, you could see the carburetor and you could you know you could mm. actually you know, it's not like these modern things with computers. Right, it's, it's designed to be able to it's fix designed. on the go a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. It was great. <laughs> so yeah, having transport was great. It was very important. Then we got out. And of course you did a lot of walking because there were no roads, but still you'd, get, you'd walk to a point. You'd drive to a point where you could walk.
0: You know. In your capacity, I guess you were, you were mentioning kind of how you were traveling uh, from community to community while you were there. Right. Were you ever really grounded in a single community or did did you, kind of, was your role ever as an educator in a single institution or were you a no. consultant? Going no, I was
1: always, I started out in the provincial office and I moved eventually after f- after seven years to the national office. I was never resident or teaching in a high school. A lot of volunteers did that, but I was always in the provincial office, and then I moved up into the national office. So I was never resident of a school or one community.
0: But did, did you you end up visiting the same communities more than once? Oh, you, you established hundreds, that. Yeah, dozens yeah. of times. So you did establish? I, would,
1: I, would, I went back and went back. I, I tried... You know and myself and my counterpart you know guys said we have no work to do in the office all our work is in the school so every day
0: get out and we had transport so we could get out of the office. Mm-hmm. So after you finished your uh, work with CUSO in 1990 you decided to stay another I think you said 14 years till so another 11 years um, what were you doing after after your project with CUSO and why did you decide to stay?
1: Okay well then I started to get involved uh, with the provincial education system and one of the more important projects that I, I realized that was happening in the Anga at the time was a system of um, top place preschools which mean vernacular language preschools and this was um, a fairly well-developed program uh, in the Enga Two or three provinces in Papua New Guinea out of twenty provinces had these programs. <clears throat> they were organized a lot and helped by a lot with the um, Summer Institute of Linguistics and other people. But basically, it was a one or a two-year program. Before children went to the English, what I'd call colonial system school, they would give them a one or a two-year introduction to literacy in their mother tongues and kids were thriving in this system, Um, whereas in the regular system we were losing about half the children by grade two. Half the children would drop out.
0: And why would you say this kind of uh, early mother tongue education that you're a, a huge advocate of? Why do you think it's so important?
1: Well, because children understood what education was about, when they went to the English system and the teacher didn't even speak their language, teacher didn't even speak their language in many cases. Children simply were totally turned off and confused and bored and otherwise intimidated. Um, I'm sure it was very similar in our schools here in the native schools uh, that I don't have any experience in. But it was a deculturalizing process. It was a, a, a strange, un, you couldn't talk to the teacher. Mm-hmm. You couldn't even talk to
0: him. And, and, I, and I guess I always think with a program like that, if, if, there's no, if you can't even communicate with the teacher, and kids are just getting graduated by age, not even by progress. Wow, well, if
1: they were pushed through, they were pushed through that, but most of them just left. Yeah. I mean, why would I be here? Mm-hmm. what's the point I don't even understand what's going on and then of course the, f- the few that succeeded and there were a few that succeeded of course and they finally made it up to like grade 7 I think about 10% of children got to grade 6 Wow. about 10% okay. of children got to grade 6 mm-hmm. under that system so <clears throat> under the new system here you had kids in church reading the bible at age 5
0: mm-hmm. So, but then after after they kind of uh, do these one to two year programs in the mother tongue? Uh, is the transition into into being taught in English still incredibly difficult, or is that? I mean, I understand that kind of the mother tongue uh, education program empowers them because it teaches them to learn in the first place. At least you know you were saying things like numeracy, um, basic literacy to read in in their own in their own tongue. I mean, it's much easier for them to learn the basics like that. But how is the how do they transition from that into learning in English?
1: Well, that was the problem. You see. So you see, there we had we had the preschool, which was a non-formal preschool, like a like a NGO kindergarten, and then we had boom into the formal system again. Mm-hmm. So again, the transition wasn't there. There was no transition. So and there were some fairly what I call visionary people at the national education level in New Guinea that had started to think about a reform of education and part of the reform of education was vernacular education in early years. Remembering that there are over 856 languages in New Guinea, that was a fairly complex task. It wasn't like we had two or three languages, right? We had like 850 languages.
0: Well, so, Pidgin is kind of the lingua franca. Pidgin,
1: there's three lingua francas there's Pidgin, there's Motu, and there's English, basically. Okay. So the three lingua francas. So, yes, Pidgin, but Pidgin in the Highlands wasn't well developed when I went there. Even the vernacular wasn't well developed. But Anga was a large language unit. Mm-hmm. They had over 200,000 speakers, which was. A large. So within the province, Enga teachers were speaking Enga to children. Whereas in other provinces where you had only small language groups, the teacher didn't speak the language of the children. But in Enga, the, most teachers wanted to teach in, in their home province.
0: Uh, that's actually what I was going to ask the next question as well as, uh, as far as mother tongue education. So what is, is the mother tongue that you're speaking of? Is, is that usually the local village dialect? Or is that, uh, is that like a lingua franca? Do they... Or is it like very? No, the you know, mo- the mother
1: tongue yeah. is the is the original language of the, the children. One okay. of those eight hundred and fifty seven mm-hmm. languages.
0: Wow! It's <laughs> difficult to design a program for each of them.
1: Well, it was a challenge, but it wasn't impossible because it was done. It was you know it was possible to do it. that was part of it was the the whole concept of the transition and the curriculum and the whole ball of wax about training people and no no books in the language. No, no. Sometimes no alphabet or orthography in the language. Uh, these were like small languages which were not well done. But the children spoke it at home. Mm-hmm. It was it was the oral history. It was the culture. It was the entire life of a child until they went to school. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like they had their language as a second thought. This was their language. <laughs> this was their whole. There, that was their only language. Yeah. Now, many children started to learn pidgin by the time they went to school too. But, uh, And then by the time most Papua New Guineans are the age of 20, they speak five or six languages. And This is typical. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I couldn't even learn French <laughs> when I was in Montreal. <laughs> there <you are. laughs> so uh, there came the idea of the education reform and I had the model in Enga to work with, which was the Talk Price Preschools. And then I got involved with the policy. And this is why you say the question was, why did I hang on? I started getting involved in education policy and I started to become uh, a liaison between the provincial office and the national um, education office because I had that kind of experience in my Canadian history and I could, you know, act as a spokesperson for the Angus situation. There were other factors involved too in terms of my familiarity with the office, and then I ended up becoming the Assistant Secretary of Education, which was basically the provincial superintendent. And so then I became a natural conduit between the province. And I started and and as the as as the assistant secretary, we in conjunction with the government of Enga, the provincial government, we had basically a policy that if a community wanted a new school, that is an English language type primary school, they had to build a talk place preschool first. And the children had to go to preschool before we would allow them to have a grade one.
0: So, in this kind of approach to localizing um, development and localizing education and making sure that the mother tongue and the local customs are taken into account, did you find that everyone you were working with at the time was, uh, kind of had a similar view of this, or did you meet resistance? Were there people that didn't agree with this, with this program? And You
1: had both. You had two, two, if I could break it down to two distinct attitudes. Remember why I was talking to parents. And the, if, you, if anybody, because there were so many different languages and cultures in New Guinea, no one language or culture dominated, which was very important in terms of politics, language politics. Because in countries where one language dominates, like, say, Vietnam, Viet is the language, and so like politics is. But you couldn't have that in New Guinea because there were so many languages. So you scratch a Papua New Guinea, and then you find a village man. And what's he want to do? Well, of course he believes in his own language and culture and his own village. Mm-hmm. So you had that very strong affiliation of cultural identity to deal with, to, mm-hmm. to, to play with, you know, mm-hmm. and to, to, to bring up. Then there was the other concept of, I don't send my kid to school to learn Enga, he already knows how to speak Enga. I send him to school to learn English, get a job, send money. <laughs> So you have those two attitudes and what we basically, and thank God, the the research and all of the history of of vernacular education proves is children do better in the bilingual system if they start in their own language. So the promise you could make to the parents is they'll learn English better, they'll they'll be more successful at work, they'll get a better job, they'll have more money. (laughs) So you could kind of promise the parents that if they were willing to work towards a vernacular education in the village,
0: that their children would actually succeed better. Mm-hmm. And that was the way you sold it. Did you ever have any issues? Um, I, I mean, I always imagine with somewhere like Papua New Guinea, when there's so many different uh, kind of identities and cultures that are in, in kind of a small space, there's a lot of conflict I was assumed there's a lot of tribal or village conflict, is that it? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever uh, come, in, come uh, across any kind of issues with that? Tribal, <laughs> tribal fighting was a huge problem in
1: the end. Really? I mean, I went through innumerable tribal fights where they would like, literally stop the war and let me go through with my little Suzuki. You know, wait, Mr. Dog, we're having a fight. Wait, wait, wait. because so they all knew me. And so, like you know, when they'd see me, they'd say, "Oh, well, he wants to get back to Warbeck, so you know we'll we'll stop the fight and let him go." Mm-hmm. and then we'll start to fight again, right? But uh, yeah, we had a lot of jokes as expatriates about the coffee pruning demonstrations where they chopped each other's coffee trees down, and
0: <laughs> but... My, uh, my father actually sailed around the South Pacific when he was around, in his early 20s, yes. and he always likes to tell me a story of when he stopped in uh, Papua New Guinea, and he uh, went to a, he was in a small town, and he went to a local soccer game, and the out- uh, town, another rival town, a couple of mi- uh, a couple hours away, uh, was in town playing soccer. There's a soccer match going on, and he said the rival town, the the other towners, were winning. They were up uh, two nothing at, at halftime. And all of the uh, the crowd just started throwing stones at them and chased them right out, like literally chased them right out of town. I <laughs> I had, that was one of my
1: first experiences in the auto <laughs> at a at a rugby match. Right, <laughs> the home team wasn't winning, so we just got rid of the umpire until we were ahead, and then we cut the cafe game. <laughs> that was the end of the game. Was when the hometown was winning. Um, yeah, but anyway, to move on to the project, and that was what developed, and that's why I stayed in New Guinea. Was I started to get involved in this project, and the through, there, there was a thing struck called the National Education Reform Task Force and I was, and my minister, were appointed as members of that task force. That task force was a policy-making body and designed a policy of um, a three-year vernacular program k 12 2 that was in vernacular language with a transition to English in grade three to six, in the primary schools, and that that was what we worked on in the task force. and was the was the was the development of that policy. So, I became very interested in this development, and I started to work closely with the national education and include even the national parliament because it required national education changes into the law. So this became law and that was great, only nobody knew how to do it. (laughs) So here we had a lovely policy that nobody knew how to implement. So at this point I made the transition from the provincial office down to the national curriculum office and I was working in a thing called the curriculum reform office, which we called CRO for short and the curriculum reform office was ta- um, uh, tasked with coming up with the implementation of the new curriculum in the 857 languages. <laughs> well, that was a I just challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lord hates a coward. <laughs> so that's when I really uh, got involved at the national level and, I, and at one point my boss came to me and said, you know, everybody's into this education reform, but nobody knows how to do it. So, like, you know, like, why don't you like make it your baby since you seem to like it? So I said, okay. So he said, well, the first thing you ought to do is like write up like some kind of a some kind of a how to <laughs> sort of a discussion paper. I said, great. So I wrote this discussion paper on how to implement elementary education because we were calling that K to 2 in vernacular elementary with the transition to primary with the transition to high school so we had three levels of education now elementary primary and high school everybody understood the the reforms at the primary level and the reforms at the high school level which was bringing grade 11 and 12 to the village and everyone was happy but nobody understood how to do vernacular so we wrote up i collaborated with two other major groups. One was the um, Department of Linguistics and Education Research at the University of Papua New Guinea, who happened to be a guy from Alberta. Michael Bopp, who was uh, head of that. And the Garoka Ukarumpa Institution of the Summer Institute of Linguistics, who were a group of uh, Bible translators that were well-established in New Guinea and had a well-established program of teaching people to read in the vernacular languages because here they were translating Bibles, but then nobody could read them. So unless they could teach people to read in the vernacular, there was no point in translating the Bible. So they had this whole program on how to train people to read in the vernacular. So we collaborated, the three of us, and came up with this discussion paper, which we circulated for discussion, and then everybody said, well, that's great, do it. And we said, no, no, it's a discussion paper. You're supposed to comment on it. We don't know anything about it. (laughs) So we started a pilot project, and we picked one province, and I ended up in two provinces. But basically, I started in a pilot project in Milne Bay Province, and we started with the existing... Talk Place Preschools. Remember the old Talk Place Preschools? So we started. We went to the original Talk Place Preschools, communities that had Talk Place Preschools, and we said, "Would you be interested in participating in a pilot project for the new education reform elementary school?" And of course, they did. Mm-hmm. they wanted to because they get all kinds of books and attention and <laughs> <Got> money. <laughs> so um, we started with in I think it was 1992. About 92 or 93, we started in Mill Bay Province. We had eight schools, I think we had 11 teachers, three languages. And we worked with that project to design a system and it was kind of like a long, involved process as you can well imagine, involving a whole lot of details that emerged in the end, everything from teachers' rights under the union to to how to do orthographies, you know, and um, so we started out with those things and we expanded gradually into all twenty provinces and by the time I left in 2001 we had 8,600 teachers in 5,400 village-based vernacular schools in
0: 350 languages. Wow, so the program was fairly successful. Very successful. successful. And it transformed the education system. And uh, have you kind of kept track of how the program is doing today? We had to, yeah.
1: Oh, no. Well, I've kind of lost track in the last few years, I have to admit, but it's implemented now. It's part of the... uh, Now, to be honest, I'd love to know, and I do keep track on the internet, but it's a bit bit hard as to some of the recent evaluations on how those children are doing in the system now that they're in the latter years of high school.
0: Mm -hmm. It must be kind of hard to... uh, You you kind of made this project your baby, it sounds like. It must be hard to leave it.
1: Well, it was hard to leave it. Yeah, I made a lot of friends, obviously, in a whole lot of things. And it was, but um, a lot of that was uh, the politics of the time, too. What happened was in New Guinea, Australia was the main contributor to the education system in terms of finance. And the Conservative government of Australia decided to switch over from direct. Budget support in New Guinea to tide aid under AusAid, mm-hmm. and there was an enormous change. See, I used to be hired by the PNG government
0: mm-hmm.
1: as part of their budget, and then suddenly I was an AusAid employee, <laughs> and my loyalty was to AusAid, not to the people of New Guinea anymore.
0: That didn't sit well with. You. Didn't sit well with <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nor did it sit well with a lot of my colleagues who were Papua New Guineans. Uh, I was in
0: Australia in about 2003-2004 uh, and I do remember at the time there have been a lot of headlines in the news about uh, boat people and a lot of kind of, neg- in a very negative, negative context, uh, boat people and there was the issue at the time of sovereignty in the Solomon Islands and...
1: Uh, yeah. it, Australia started to get a bit of a bad name on after this implementation of this new budgetary sport because Australia p- punches way above its weight in the Southeast, mm-hmm. South Pacific, so like. Australia, being the formal administrator of New Guinea, had a huge influence. And when it was direct budgetary support, people kind of accepted it. But when it became Aussie policy-dominated aid, the whole
0: nature of it changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must be frustrating working with the politics of uh, the politics of international, <laughs> international interests. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>
1: There's a problem there. Anyway, I think we've exceeded our ten minutes.
0: Yeah, I just have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, your, as far as your your involvement in education and language politics, was that something you were passionate about and really involved in before you went to Papua New Guinea as well? Mm.
1: Not so much. Only, uh, I understood a lot of the concepts of bilingual and multilingual situations from my experience growing up in Montreal in a bilingual environment, being an Anglo and being surrounded in a French culture where 90% of the people were French. And so I did understand that concept of, of being a minority language speaker in a majority culture. And I did understand the concept of learning through the early works that I studied of Wilder Penfield at McGill in, the, um, in his studies in the 50s concerning multilingual children and how, how young children, preschool children learn languages, and I knew that growing up in an immigrant community, that the kids learned the language easier than the parents and became translators for mm-hmm. their parents. It's definitely a link there. So I, I had that background, and as I grew up, I had that in my kind of,
0: mm-hmm. I don't know, what's the word, being? was well, we were talking about earlier, life experience is so often much more important than actual So, yes, and, and of course, I,
1: I took a, I took French in school from the from kindergarten. So it wasn't like here where you start French in like grade 7 or 8. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like you started French right away. And of course, you're surrounded by French. So that's a whole uh, uh, thing that too. And like when you live, live in Montreal, like as you have, you know that you can like just ride in the bus. There's the ad in French. So you end up reading it in French. Mm-hmm. So you learn because you're literate. <laughs> and you may not speak French, but you can read it. So you, you know, and I understood that concept that children learn to read in the language they speak best.
0: You said to me uh, yesterday, actually, I thought it was a really good quote, just that uh, children only learn to read once. They only
1: learn to read once. And and it's easiest to learn to read in a language you speak. It's extremely difficult to learn to read in a language you don't understand. Like, you can put together the the symbol D-O-G, and you can even get to know that D-O-G becomes dog. What's a dog?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the point of reading? There's no reading there. There's no understanding. And I learned that again. I saw that all through and Southeast again. Asia, Vietnam, and, 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 and Indonesia, and East Timor, Children, children could rhyme off what they were reading on the board, and then I'd go to the, the district education officer and I'd say, Would you ask that girl to say in language, to explain to you in language what she just read on the on the chalkboard? Mm-hmm. And so he'd ask her in language, like he'd mumbai or something, and uh, she didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd, I'd look at him and I said. Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> That's what made
0: you such an advocate of his mother Maybe tongue. Such an advocate
1: concept. of mother tongue, mm-hmm. but I had the concepts from living in Montreal, but I didn't have it as a as a system. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a system at the time. What it became in New Guinea was a system.
0: One last question for you. Uh, so I know before you went there, you were working in education politics in in, in uh, Northern BC, correct? As kind of in education administration. And here in the provincial
1: level, at the BC School Trustees Association, I was a director of the BC School Trustees. The director of the BC School Trustees Association in the sixties, and I was the chairman of the local school district. So more frustrating to work
0: in education politics here or in Papua New Guinea?
1: I I wouldn't say it's just different. Not, the challenges are the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, same bureaucracy, bureaucratic frustrations <laughs> at times. But I mean, I mean, uh, I could never
1: even explain to teachers in New Guinea what the average Canadian teacher had in the classroom. The fact that we spent say four thousand seven hundred dollars per child, they had like two dollars <laughs> per child. <laughs> I mean, it's different, but uh, different challenges, different, uh, I wouldn't say one is more frustrating than the other, just different. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, uh, the one thing about, the real difference was that the education system, the colonial education system, based on rote in languages children didn't speak, was so bad that there was nothing you could do to make it worse. (laughs) So it gave you a lot of confidence (laughs) to try it.
0: You couldn't make a mistake.
1: You couldn't couldn't make it worse. I mean, you could make mistakes, but you couldn't make it worse. (laughs) So you could encourage teachers, just try this. Maybe (laughs) this will work. Try this, you know, instead, you know. I mean, at some point we had an apprenticeship system for our teacher trainees, which in the elementary we had a whole new cadre of teachers. And what I would just say if I said, you know, if you're there in the classroom, remember, they're in the village they know every child. I said, just pretend you're like their auntie mm-hmm. and like, you know, you're you know, teaching them something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just act like, you know, you're their aunt
0: or your uncle or their uncle mm-hmm. and, and like, you won't go wrong. <laughs> yeah. exactly. You just need a paternal... Community-oriented kind of approach to it, and that
1: was that was the thing. It takes well, who is it? Hilly Creamer said, "It takes a village to raise a child." Well, in
0: New Guinea, it's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Village raised children. I think that's a great <laughs> quote to end on. So, thanks a lot, Don. <laughs>